0: Welcome to Salem Chapel. If you're new with us, my name is Johnny Pereira. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. If you're watching us online, welcome to you as well. We're so glad that you are here. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you were with us last week, we started a brand new series entitled Weapons of War. Now here's what I know, if you spend any time in church at all, uh, you are probably familiar with the passage of scripture that we are going to be walking through uh, for the next seven weeks uh, that's often referred to as the armor of God in Ephesians 6 verses uh, 10 through 20. But really what we're going after this morning is answering this question and what we're going after this series is answering this question, how do you, how do I stand firm in our battle. So then that poses another question, what battle are you facing today? What battle have you been facing in the last week? What battle have you been facing in the last month, three months, six months, year, maybe years? And you feel overwhelmed, you feel defeated, you feel like there's no hope, at best you are settling to survive. Because the reality is, is that's most of us. I've been doing this for any length of time. Here's what I've come to realize. Is that most everyone who walks into those doors or most everyone who's watching me even right now online or who will watch this later on whenever that is, is enduring something. So how do we stand firm in our battle? How do you stand firm in your battle Today? See, I wasn't planning on reading this, but this passage of scripture came to mind in that new song that, uh, that Crystal just sang about just the victory is ours, but it's not ours because we have something in and of, our, of ourselves to win this battle. Gray mentioned we fight from a place, we fight from a place of victory, not for victory. We dealt with a lot of that last week, so I won't preach that message again. But Revelation 19, all the way at the end of the Bible. You know, oftentimes we see Jesus as, and rightly so, we see him as this servant. We see him as one, as a lamb who didn't open up his mouth, who submitted himself to the cross humbly. He had every bit of power to stop all of that, but I love Revelation 19. And I think this morning, man, I'm not sure I can go on. I'm, I'm not sure I understand that victory is mine in Christ Jesus. Well. This passage of scripture came to mind, Revelation 19, this isn't on the screen because I just literally just thought of it during that last song. Verse 11 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, to speaking when Jesus comes back to right all wrong, and behold though, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, that's speaking of Jesus, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Listen to the difference of how Jesus is described here. And armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why do I read that? Because there's coming a day where Jesus is going to come back. And the evil that seems to be winning today. That the chances will be no more to accept the grace of God. But there will come a day where evil will be trampled out. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign. And sin will be no more. That's why today, even though it may not feel like it, we can have the hope that whatever we are enduring... Whatever we are, that is facing us, whatever battle it is, that the victory is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we talk about weapons of war, literally what we're talking about is what has Jesus entrusted to us when we put our faith and trust in him as our savior to be able to experience victory in the battles that we face. Victory over sin, victory over circumstances, victory over sin that has been committed to us. So that's what we're gonna, Talk about this morning. So, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 14. Let me just read this passage of scripture again, verses 10 through 13. We're going to spend the majority of our time in verse 14, but look at verse 10. Paul says this finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let me just stop there and remind ourselves, Paul has literally taken six chapters to talk about what Jesus Christ has done for us in chapters one through three, the blessings of that, the benefits of that, chapters four through six, how that actually makes a difference in your everyday life, in your personal walk with the Lord, in your relationships, in your family, with those that you work for, with those who work for you. But understand Paul closes this out by saying, here's what you need to remind yourself of. Your strength doesn't lie in yourself, but it lies in the Lord. Verse 11. So what do we do? We put on, that's the idea of continually doing this, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What does that tell you and me this morning? It reminds me that there is evil in this world because of sin. Not that I needed another reminder of it, but yesterday the shootings in Buffalo, those tragic shootings that... We're just totally baseless, no motivation for it other than racism and sin and white supremacy. If you didn't need another reminder, there was one that we live in a sinful, broken, evil world. And so you're like, well, why doesn't God just stop it all? Right? We've heard that. But even when we ask that question, we don't know what we're asking because literally you're saying, why doesn't God just make us all robots with no choices? See, we want God to stop the evil that we don't like, but we don't want him to stop the evil that we do. So there's a personal choice. You don't know what you're asking if you're like, well, why does God allow any of this to happen? Because he's given us choice, personal responsibility. But I read Revelation 19, there's coming a day where God's going to make all things right. But nevertheless, what do we live in? As Paul emphasizes, man, we live in a broken world where it seems like evil reigns. Verse 13, so what do we do? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all seeing what God has given you, implementing that in your life, stand firm. Now here's where we're gonna be this morning. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Four times in verses 11 through 13, we have the word stand or withstand. What does that mean? To hold your position, to hold your ground. So how do I hold my ground in the face of fear, in in the face of the battle? that is in front of me? How do I endure? Well, verses 14 through 18 are going to tell us how to stand. And we start that. This morning, something that I thought was interesting that many of you don't know, next to this passage of scripture, and uh, let me get there myself, in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, you ought to write in the margin of your Bible, you know, if you call this place your home, I'd love for you to do that. I do that on my own, uh, and so I'm not asking you to do something that I don't do. You don't have to do it, but I think it's a benefit. You ought to write next to these verses about the armor of God, Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 19, Because in Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 19, what God is doing in this passage of Scripture, and I don't mean to teach on it this morning, but I just want to mention it, that God's responding to Israel's idolatry And saying, you haven't done what you should. You are my representatives. You are my people. You have been put on this earth to show that you are my people, to make a difference, to call out injustice, to serve justice, to do these things that God called them to do all the way back in the book of Exodus and they were unfaithful in doing it. So in Isaiah 59, what God is saying is, is, I'm going to put on my armor and I'm going to send someone who's going to do what you can't do. Do. And so in verses 15 through 19, we actually have God's armor, Yahweh's armor, being described. Why do I mention that? Because much of the armor that's described in Isaiah 59 is mentioned in Ephesians 6. And Paul, who was a Pharisee, would have known Isaiah 59. So even though he's probably in chain to a Roman guard and he sees the soldier's uniform and his armor and he would have been able to use that as an analogy for what we're going to read, he's also thinking about God's armor in Isaiah 59. Why do I mention that? Because when we look at this passage of Scripture and it says, put on the whole armor of God, Literally what it's saying is, put on God's armor. Jesus has given you his armor. So it's not just something you bought at the army surplus store that you hope it works. No, no, no. You have the armor that Jesus wore, and he's giving it to you. What's also interesting is, In this description from verse 14 all the way through verse 18 is the order that these pieces of armor are mentioned are the exact order that a soldier would put these pieces of armor on, which is going to have significance this morning when we talked about the belt of truth. Well, what what did the belt do? It did three things. So this by no means was a uh, Roman soldier's belt. This is a belt I pulled out of my closet. But let's think about what a belt does. Here's what a belt does. First of all, it gives support to the core. That's what it would have done in Roman times. They would have strapped on this belt and what it would have done, much like a weightlifting belt, is it would have given strength to the core of the soldier so that he, all of his muscles would have been held in, in place. What else did it do? It held and stabilized the other pieces of armor. See, the blessed plate would have rested on the soldier's belt. The sword that the soldier would have used would have been sheathed on the belt. Other pieces of armor, other weaponry that we, who would have used it, would have rested on the belt, so it held and stabilized the other pieces of armor. What else did it do? It secured your tunic so you wouldn't trip. What often what they would do is they would take their tunic and they would tuck it in their belt so that that gave them more mobility, more opportunity to move, more opportunity to run, more mobility in battle. So that's literally what the belt did. Now, if you are to look at the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, here's the literal translation of verse 14, which I think is significant. It says, stand then by strapping truth around your waist. Literally what Paul is talking about here is knowing the truth, the truth of God's word, but not just knowing it, but applying it not just hearing it but obeying it write these two things down these are two fundamental questions in your battle that you face every day two fundamental questions you could desc- i could describe it like that i could say two fundamental questions in your walk with the lord two fundamental questions in you abiding with jesus here they are number 1 what is god saying Very important question for you to ask yourself every day. What is God saying? What is God saying in his word? What is God saying through moments that I'm encountering in my life? What may God be saying? Here's the second thing, and it's just as important. What am I gonna do about it? Those two questions are fundamental in your walk with the Lord in the battle that you face. What is God saying and what am I going to do about it? The idea of truth, this belt of truth, isn't just knowing the truth, but it's actually the idea of obeying it, of applying it to your life. Why do I say that? Because so many of us know a lot about this Bible, but how many of us are actually applying it to our life? Let me give you a study from 2020. This is from Arizona Christian University. thought this was so interesting. Not shocking, but interesting. Some 58% of Americans surveyed no longer, now this isn't believer-unbeliever, but 58% of Americans surveyed, it's probably more, but this is the group of 1,000 that they asked. Some 58% of Americans surveyed no longer believe in absolute truth. And instead, say it's up to the individual to decide what is moral, what is truth or morally right. Not shocking, right? Wasn't shocking to me. Let me just say this as a caveat, by the way. Sometimes we can say, man, today is so bad. Like, look at everything that's going around, and I would not disagree with you. But can I just say that what's going on today is not. Any better? In fact, what was going on during the time that Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians was probably worse. Like, if you study anything about what was legal in Rome and looked acceptable, I don't want to go into details, but it's much worse than what we're even experiencing today. All I say is, is truth has always been under attack. Moral absolute has always been under attack. Remember, Paul is writing to a church in a city that religious tolerance was the norm. Like to have this exclusive idea that there is one God and one way to heaven would have been taboo at best in this culture. So nothing's different from today. Doing whatever you want and it being acceptable is no different today than it was back then. I'm not making light of today. I'm just saying sometimes we've got to remind ourselves that sin is sin and evil has existed ever since it entered the world. So 58% no longer believe in absolute truth of the Americans that were surveyed. Not shocking. This was a little more concerning. The study found that those who would say this, that believe the Bible to be the true, reliable word of God. Well, what percentage of those people believe in absolute truth? Those that say, I believe that the Bible is the reliable, true word of God. You would expect that 100% would believe in absolute truth. Those who believe in what the Bible is, sadly not. 46% of the people who said that don't believe in absolute truth. Now that seems like an oxymoron to me. Until you actually do ministry. Now, who accept it? 48%. So literally 58% of the people that were surveyed, who they didn't even ask if they believe that the Bible is true, they believe that Jesus is their Savior, 58% of them say, no, 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 I don't believe that there's absolute truth. 46% of the people who say they believe the Bible to be true don't believe in moral absolute truth. Why do I emphasize that? And hear me on this. I say this from a place of love. Because there's people in here that would fall on that same statistic. But Paul says, wait a minute, the way that we stand is to put on the belt of truth. So here's the title of the message this morning. I know that was a long introduction. Here's the title of the message. What belt are you wearing? What belt are you wearing? Here's the idea I want you to understand from just this short First part of verse 14, that Jesus has provided you with his belt of truth to stand in your struggle. That's why I mentioned Isaiah 59. Because it's not just some belt of truth, some arbitrary belt of truth that, yeah, okay, whatever. No, no, no. This is Jesus' belt of truth. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That this Word of God is the same Word of God that Jesus used to fight his battle in the wilderness that we are, is recorded in the Gospels. And so what Jesus does when I put my faith and trust in him is he says, here's what I want to do. I want to actually give you a belt of truth that can give you stability in the struggles that you are facing. So here's what I want to do in the time we have left. I'm going to give you three ways that you put on this belt of truth because here's the question we need to be asking this morning. How do we put it on? Like, if this is what I've been given, then how in the world do I put on the belt of truth this morning? Like, I want to be able to stand in my battle. I want to be able to stand in my struggle. I don't want to be overcome by what I'm, what I'm dealing with today or the last week or the last month or the last year. No, no, I want to experience victory. The victory that is mine in Christ Jesus. So that's a great question. How do we put on this belt? Well, let me give you the first way. Here it is. You see the truth of God's word is a blessing. You see it is a blessing. Think about this, think about the Bible. One of the first things that we learn about God in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, is that God reveals himself in words. The opening chapter, he's like, prove it. The opening chapter of Genesis. We don't have time to turn there, but if you go to the opening chapter, the very first chapter of Genesis, you know what it says? God said. God said. So literally what the Bible is, is the Bible is God speaking his truth to us through words. When you think about the Bible, let me just give you some ideas about the Bible, because some of you may be new in your faith, or, or you're, not even, you're not even a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're here, you're watching, and I'm so glad that you are. Let me just explain some things about the Bible, because we need to understand what the Bible is before we can see it as a blessing, The Bible is written in three languages, Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament, and then there's some Aramaic as well in the Bible. It's written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents. Let me be clear, not authors, writers. Explain what the difference here in a minute. 40 different writers on three continents so Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's made up of 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. The Bible is a library of books that are one book showing divine unity and continuity throughout. And the God of the Bible, who is the hero of the story of the Bible, is Jesus Christ. The written word of God reveals to us what? The incarnate word of God. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. By the way, if you're just into, like, economics, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Like, not your favorite, like, you know, romance story or self-help book is... Amazing as you may think those are, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. But here's what I want to answer real quickly, understanding God's word is a blessing. Asking this question, why is it a blessing? And what makes it different than any other book that you may pull off the shelf that you love to listen to on Audible? Here's the first reason, because the Bible is inspired by God. That word inspired literally means breathe out by God. What this means is that when the Old Testament, the New Testament writers were writing, their minds were guided by the Holy Spirit so they could accurately write what God wanted specially revealed to mankind. You're like, well, give me a verse on that. Here it is, 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy, no word of God was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible that you have open this morning, whether it's on your lap or on your phone or wherever you may be reading it from this morning, is the inspired word of God. It is breathed out by God for us. The Bible is in the inerrant word of God. What do I mean by that? It's without error in the original text by the authors. So we don't have the original manuscripts of any of the individuals who wrote these books. but So you're like, well, then how do we know it's inerrant? Well, because here's the reality. The Bible is also the preserved word of God. Doesn't do much good for it to be inspired and inerrant if it hasn't been preserved by God. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about the Old Testament. Like, have you ever thought to yourself when you're reading the Bible and you come across some squirrely passage, like, really, really, really? Is this really the word of God? I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand because you feel guilty even doing it. But I'll raise my hand. Well, what about the Old Testament? How do we know it's preserved? Because before the, what you don't know is before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'll share just in a minute the significance of what that is if you don't. Biblical scholars had to rely on a ninth century manuscript of the Old Testament called the Masoretic Text. So ninth century, A.D., But all of a sudden in 1946, this little shepherd boy was throwing rocks into caves, Qumran caves, and all of a sudden heard something break. And in 1946, they discovered something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, papyrus of the Old Testament that dated back some of the manuscripts back to 2,000 years ago. And then all of a sudden what they did is they took that Masoretic text that was around 9th century A.D., and they compared it to these manuscripts, some dating back 2,000 years ago. And they took the book of Isaiah, that, Isaiah 59, we just referenced it, and they compared it to the Masoretic text. And you know what they found? 95% of the Masoretic text, 9th century A.D., compared to this Dead Sea Scroll, some dating back 2,000 years, were 95% identical. And the other 5% were really misspellings or or certain scribal errors, but none of that 5% actually took away from any of the message of the Old Testament. Why do I mention that? Because sometimes we're like, yeah, yeah, Johnny, like I have I have conversations with people that would call themselves academic and and would call themselves smart, and I get criticized because like you believe in that Bible, like you gotta throw your brain in a trash can. No, 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 no. There has yet to be any evidence that would contradict that the Bible has been preserved by God. That's the Old Testament. And I'm literally, you have no idea what the struggle is, that I'm literally taking something that is such a vast subject and I'm trying to combine it in just this little snippet. But I think it's important if we're going to talk about truth to actually say what is the evidence that we, what we hold in our laps this morning is actually legitimate. What about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament there's more manuscript evidence in the New Testament and it's unsurpassed than any other ancient book that is not argued whether or not it's legit. Even more so than the Old Testament. There are more than 5,700 Greek manuscripts that exist containing either parts of the New Testament or all of the New Testament. The oldest of those dating back to 100 A.D. Revelation was written in 90 A.D. Let's just compare that to some classics that maybe you got to go back to in your mind. Some of your college students and you just finished school for the semester. So you're like, I don't want to talk about school. Well, just stick with me. Compare this to the Homer's Iliad. How many of you ever read that? You're like, don't remind me. Okay, most of you. I actually like um, Greek mythology, but the Homer's Iliad has only 1,757 manuscripts in existence. Never had a class on arguing whether or not Homer's Iliad was legit. I never did. Beowulf, I love Beowulf. Like that's the one book in English literature that I like that I read. That's it. Praise God for Cliff's Notes. Do they still exist? Beowulf comes to us, get this, from one manuscript. That's it. Never took a class on arguing the legitimacy of Beowulf that is a fictional character. Now, the wealth of manuscript evidence, over 23,000 manuscripts for the New Testament exist there's a chart up here on the back of the screen. Forgot my laser pointer at home. I love to take an opportunity to use that whenever I can, and I forgot it. But nevertheless, you see up here in the blue, some of you really, man, i got to break out the laser pointer, I guess. Um, the things are in blue are all the different classics and the amount of manuscripts. I know it's small, and that's okay. Here's the point I want you to see. The blue are in our our, our Books that are classics. You got you got Tacitus, you got Herodias, history, you got Plato, you've got Caesar and the Gallic Wars, and as I mentioned, you have Homer. Now, all that red is all the manuscripts that exist for the New Testament. Now go to the next slide. So we have 23,769 known copies of New Testament manuscripts. 10,000 written in Latin, as I mentioned, over 5,700 written in Greek, and you can go on down the line. What's the point? Just say these two words with me. So what? Say it. So what? Because some of you are like, really? This is what we're talking about today? The reason why I want to emphasize this is so that in those times where you're tested to say, like Satan said to Eve in the garden, did God really say Does it take faith to believe that this is the word of God? Absolutely. Are apologetics good? Absolutely. But you know, at the end of the day, what I put my faith in is a matter of the heart. See, Psalm 19, verses 10 and 11 The psalmist says this about God's word, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Listen to me, if we're going to put on the belt of truth, we have to start by saying to ourselves, this book's different. This book is a blessing given to me by God that when I go to it, I can say, no, 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 there's evidence that actually exists that this is true, that this is different. It's not the best-selling book of all time because of a great marketing strategy. It's the greatest book of all time because God's word that says that his word will last forever. It will never return void. It's the thing that I go to to give me stability. What did the belt do? It's the thing that gives me support. It's the thing that allows me to have everything else that God has given me. If I don't believe that the Bible is true, then how can I believe that salvation is true? How can I believe in the righteousness that we'll look at next week that he's given me is actually worth anything in my life? How can I believe that the peace that he promises that we're gonna look at is worth anything in my life? How can I believe that the faith that I have to guard me against the darts of the enemy is worth anything in my life? How can I believe that my identity in Jesus Christ, which is the helmet of salvation that protects my mind, is worth anything? How can I believe that I actually have something to fight off the enemy with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, if I don't believe that this is truth? And we gotta start. How do we put on this belt? How do we put it on every day? Man, we gotta remind ourselves that what I'm putting on, man, it's a blessing. That's why I wanna put it on. Here's the second thing. Second way that we put on the belt of truth. Here's what we gotta do. As much as we need to see the belt of truth as a blessing and as Paul says, put it on, here's what we also gotta say. Man, I gotta remove any other belt that I may be wearing and see it as a counterfeit. See, it's not a matter of are you wearing a belt. The title of the message is what? What belt are you wearing? See, the devil's main strategy for you, for me, you know what it is? It's deception. It's the number one strategy. It's the universal tool, if you want to call it this way, use this analogy. It's the universal tool in the enemy's toolbox for you. Deception. Deception. I just made reference to it. What did the devil say to Adam and Eve? Did God actually say? You know how many times I think that in a week when I'm faced with, am I just gonna hear or am I gonna obey? You know how many times in my mind it's like, did God actually say that? What's the workaround? Did God actually say? Let me give you some counterfeit belts We often wear for our stability. This could be a series in and of itself. Some counterfeit belts that you, that I may be wearing today that we look to for stability. Here's the first one, the belt of convenience. Some of us are wearing that belt today. Well, if what God says works for me in the moment, then I'll do it. But if there's any bit of inconvenience in obeying God's word, then I'm out. Because I wear the belt of, inconvenience, or belt of convenience. How about this? The belt of safety. Like, you know what I got strapped on all the time as my belt? The seat belt. The safety belt. Every question I'm always asking is, do I feel safe? Do I feel safe? Do I feel safe? Do I feel safe? Nothing wrong with safety. I actually like to be safe. I want my kids to be safe. I want my wife to be safe. Nothing wrong with safe. But is it the belt that's overriding everything else that I'm wearing? Because I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for men and women of the Bible who didn't play it safe, because we wouldn't be here today. And unfortunately, many of us have replaced the belt of truth for the belt of safety. How about this, the belt of relationships? Oh, that's what I'm looking at for my stability Man, the idea of being alone freaks me out. So I'm going to date this guy. I'm going to date this girl. All I know, they, don't care. they couldn't care less about seeing God's word as truth. But after all, I don't want to be alone. So I'm just going to continue to compromise. And I'm going to continue to be about these relationships in my life. Because at the end of the day, you know what I'm looking to for stability? Not the belt of truth relationships. How about this? Marriage. Whoo-hoo. Man, do I want to preach on this one. Marriage. Nothing wrong with marriage. Can I just eliminate all doubt? There shouldn't be any, but just to be safe, I love being married. <laughs> love being married. Just, just in case you were wondering, I love being married, and I love more who I'm married to. But somewhere along the line, in churches, we have gotten across this idea that if you're not married, you are a second-class citizen in the church, That when Paul even talks about the gift of singleness, and he mentions that it was a gift because it gave him freedom to do things that he could do that he couldn't do if he was married or if he has a family. But unfortunately, in churches, we look at everyone who's single and we're all asking this question, though we may not verbalize it, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Like, literally, bro, Like you're, you're, you're 35 and you ain't married yet. What's wrong with you? Maybe that's what God wants. Maybe he wants you to walk in that freedom. Maybe he wants you to have less responsibilities in that way so you can have more responsibilities than others. My point is this, so many of us have gotten caught up into thinking that if I'm just married, then I will have achieved utopia. And remember, this is why I say this, I love being married, and I love who I'm married to. But marriage ain't easy. God bless you who said amen. (laughs) Bad idea. (laughs) Because the reason why marriage is difficult in our marriage is predominantly because of me. See what I did there? Whoever said amen needs to take a lesson. My point is just this, we're looking at something that's not a bad thing. Convenience isn't a bad thing. Safety isn't a bad thing. Marriage isn't a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol when we replace it for the right belt, which is the belt of truth. How about this? Kids. Kids. Everything's for my kids. Kids. Got them involved in a million different things. Listen, I got two teenagers. Life is busy. I get it. But so often we can have them involved in everything else and want to give them everything, which is, that's, a, that's in and of itself can be a pure desire to want to give them more than what you've been given. I'm not saying anything against those types of things, but listen to me. Kids can become your belt and your sense of stability. So when they leave your home, then where are you? Because at the end of the day, you know what my responsibility as a parent, as a parent, that when they leave my home that I have equipped them and how to encounter life, how to face struggles, how to face problems, how to be someone who is a good friend. How someone, if God wants them to be married, someone that that has characteristics to be a good spouse, to know what to look for in a spouse. If they're single, how to walk with the Lord in that calling, whatever it is. But that's my purpose. And how can I do that without being armed with the belt of truth? How about this? Like I said, this is a series, Politics do I need to say anything about that? Let's move on. Neutrality, neutrality. I don't want to make anybody unhappy. I don't want to offend anyone. We're just gonna be neutral, I'm gonna be Switzerland. And we put on that belt rather than the belt of truth and we therefore we stand for nothing, which at the end of the day, leads to instability. How about this selfishness, right? Here's my point, we're either wearing this morning a belt of truth or a belt of idolatry. There's only two belts, only two. Even though I mentioned many manifestations, every one of those things, if they are the thing that we look to for stability more than the word of truth, it's idolatry. Listen to me, you and I are only as stable as the truth that is holding us. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 24 through 27, and Jesus gives that illustration about the wise man and the foolish man? And they both, built, they both built houses. Both experienced the same circumstances rain, floods, wind. One house stood, one fell flat. The house stood, stood on what? The rock. Jesus Christ, who is the Word. What's the purpose of the word of God? Remember all the way back to the beginning of this message is to show us who Jesus is. And my foundation and your foundation for living cannot be founded on anything else other than the word of God or I am going to experience at best instability in my life. Man, if we're gonna put on the belt of truth, here's what we gotta do. Yeah, man, we gotta first see it as a blessing. Like, I wanna put it on. But in order to put it on, we got to say, man, what am I wearing instead of that belt? And here's the last thing. We got to submit to God's word. We got to submit to it as our stability in life. As our stability in life. How do we do that? Let me give you some ways. Here's the first way. You've got to align your decisions, responses, attitudes, and ambitions by the word of God? What decisions this morning are you struggling to make? Are you looking to make? What responses? What attitudes? What ambitions? And you're saying, what does God, how does God's word inform those things? And when I see it as the way, my obedience to this book, to see it as a way to experience God's best in my life. That's what it looks like to submit to the word of God. To commit your life to it. To say, I want to be in it. I want to read it. I want to ask those two fundamental questions. What is God saying and what am I going to do about it before I end my time in God's word? That is in essence what the questions we are asking in this journal that you can pick up if you don't have one at the Welcome Center after the service. You got to commit yourself to it. You got to put on your belt of truth before you can put it on anyone else's. So I got to commit myself to it. And listen to me, if you have children this morning, you also got to say, "No, no, no. Our family is going to be a family whose decisions and ambitions and responses and attitudes are going to be shaped by this." Mom's dad, when's the last time you prayed with your kids? When's the last time you've asked them what they learned in Salem kids? When's the last time you said, hey, you've got an elementary student, hey, let's read God's word together like you're taught in Salem kids. Hey, let's pray like you're being taught to pray in Salem kids. I promise you, they will tell you. But that's where it starts. Here's the second thing. We need to filter every circumstance personally and culturally through God's word. Psalm 119, 105. Crystal actually mentioned it in our worship set. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In other words, God, your word shows me where to go. It shows me what step to it take. It shows me where to avoid, what hole to avoid, how I should walk, where I should walk, where I shouldn't walk. But unfortunately, here's, here's how we read Psalm 119, 105. Your word is an emergency flashlight that I will use when I have exhausted all of my other options. That's our verse, Right? We've got to filter every circumstance, personally and culturally, through God's word. Sadly, here's what we've done. We've mistaken, we've mistaken compassion for compromise in the church. There's a lot of talk stirring up about this whole abortion thing. And though you may not know it, I've watched quite a few Instagram stories on Christians giving their take on this. And can I just be transparent? It has put me in a horrible mood. Like, Lord would be like, have you seen this? I was like, I don't want to see it. Because I'm shocked that people who believe that God's word is absolute truth are giving reasons on this topic And not one time is God's word even mentioned. Now listen to me. I'm not surprised by someone who doesn't believe in the Bible as God's word and someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ to have certain views on this topic. I'm not surprised by that at all. But I'm surprised at the amount of Christians for the sake of compassion are compromising, and every reason that's being given is just based on how they feel, what society says. No one's ever said Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15, and all the stories that I've watched in the last two weeks, where David says, you created me in my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now listen to me. In the same breath, here's what grieves me, is we can have Christians that want to say that abortion is wrong, that abortion is murder, but in the same breath, don't give a lick about fighting for the justice of those who are outside of the womb. What's my point? This is a whole topic and I get it. I'm delving into something that I don't have time to talk about. My point is this. Are we allowing God's word to shape what we as Christians believe about these topics? How about gender? You're like, man, Johnny, you're dealing with all of them today. Just, yep, (laughs) yep. Because we're talking about the belt of truth. How about gender? When you've thought about this, have you thought about Genesis 127? God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. How about sex? The amount of Christians and how they view sex is no different statistically than people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is pure, undefiled in the bounds of marriage. How about politics? When's the last time you've thought about who you're going to vote for and you actually ask this? What do they believe and does it jive with the Bible? Now, I get it. You ain't voting for your pastor. I get that. Unfortunately, those days are gone. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.16 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 1 Peter two seven and 8 says that the gospel is a rock of offense. What's my point? Listen to me. So many of us are wearing the belt of neutrality and we're trying to walk around and say, I don't want to offend anyone. Don't want to offend anyone. But the reality is at some point, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him, you're going to offend you're going to offend and my concern is is when it comes to this second way that we submit to the god filter every circumstance personally and culturally through the word of god we have mistaken compassion for compromise here's the third way that we submit to god's word god's truth is your starting place with questions you have about life it's your starting place Submission, you know what it takes? Humility. It's not about me. Humility to say this, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still confessing. I'm still repenting. Lord, I'm a work in progress that is ready to say yes and no in my life according to your truth. It's me saying, as your pastor, I'm still learning. There's still areas of my life that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit through the belt of truth is showing me, Johnny, this is where you need to take off your counterfeit belt and this is where you need to put on your belt of truth. There are still areas of my life that I'm totally clueless to up to this point. That I still am learning, I am still am growing, I'm still submitting, I'm still confessing, I need to still repent. And unfortunately, some of us think because we have certain aspects that we're like, bless God, that's truth. That we're thinking we've got it all together and that's not submitting to God's truth is your stability in life. It's saying, no, 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 Lord, your truth is my starting place with questions that I have about life. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says this. All Scripture. Can you say those two words with me? Say it, ready? All Scripture. Just say the first word. All, All. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How many of you ever heard of Thomas Jefferson? Raise your hand. Every hand should be going up. So I did not know this. This week I actually found this out. For, For many of you, you're like, man, Johnny, you were late to the party. Thomas Jefferson, this was shocking to me. I knew that he was not like someone who believed in the gospel. I knew he was Gnostic at best, but this shocked me. So what Thomas Jefferson did with the Bible is he literally went through the Bible with a pair of scissors and was like, I like that, I don't like that. And he literally cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like. Literally, cut them all out. In fact, that Bible's on display, where you literally see the parts of the Bible that he liked and he kept those and the parts of the Bible he didn't like, man, those went in the trash. What did Thomas Jefferson do? He's like, I'm gonna make my own translation. And as ridiculous as that that sounds, we all do that. Ain't one person in here that doesn't do that from time to time. We tend to determine whether or not we are wearing the belt of truth based on what pieces of truth we are abiding by, but then dismiss the truth that we disregard. And we're all self-righteous by nature. So like, you're like, literally, you didn't vote for that person, you ain't wearing the belt of truth. Literally, you're still growing in that area. You don't have that figured out by now, you're not wearing the belt of truth. Well, let me give you the things that I believe, things that need to be taught more. And we just focus on those and we disregard all the others that, wear that we have not submitted to the belt of truth at all in our life. Why do I say submitting to God's word in our life says God's word is the starting point because in our lives, until we're with Jesus, we're still having to say, what belt am I wearing? Here's the last thing. We view God's truth as a personal need, not a weapon to use on someone else. How am I submitting to God's word as my stability in life? Here's what you do. You view God's truth as a personal need. This is what I need. Yes, everyone needs it but I can't control everyone else. I need God's truth in my life. It's not a weapon to be used on someone else. Remember when I said earlier that we mistake compassion for compromise? Well, let me also say this. We've replaced compassion with condemnation. You know what I found so interesting? You know why? A lot of the reasons why, if you believe that abortion is wrong, you are automatically put into a category of someone who is hateful, of someone who is, who is unempathetic, of someone who doesn't have compassion, because so many Christians have acted that way. Totally clueless to the reality that there's many people that you know that you don't even realize that struggle with the tremendous guilt that they made a decision that they wish they could take back. And in the topic of abortion is wrong, there's never mentioned the grace and forgiveness of God that is there, the healing that can be found the reality that that child is in heaven with God, that he can forgive, that he can heal. But see, no, 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 no. We just like to pick out a topic that makes us all feel better because maybe we didn't find ourselves in a situation where we did that. Because we've replaced compassion with condemnation. How about gender? don't think to yourself that there's people that are struggling. You don't think to yourself that they're not battling things inside. You don't think to themselves that they're looking for something to satisfy. But yet we just want to critique and we want to condemn rather than saying, wait a minute, where's the compassion? We could do that about sex. We could do that about politics. We could do that with any hot topic that exists that has always been a hot topic. And instead of letting the gospel offend, we think we need to do our own offending. Listen to me. The gospel can offend on its own. It doesn't need your help. See, i got to view God's twer- truth as a personal need, not a weapon to yield. Not a weapon, I don't know if, if you had a relative who ever did this, not a weapon to go around, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. Now i got to do it Right? All right, forget it. You know what I mean. Going around saying, who can I whip today? Bless God, you need to hear this. No, 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 no. Lord, where in my life do I need to put it on? What does it say in John 1:14 that Jesus came full of grace and truth? Ephesians says we need to speak the truth in love. 1 Corinthians 13 says if I don't have love, I can be the greatest speaker and sound like a gong. I can have the greatest faith, I can even be a martyr, but without love, I am nothing. Just wanna ask you this morning, would you stand with me? I know I went a little long this morning, but there's no greater piece of armor that we need to put on every day than the belt of truth because without the belt of truth, The rest of our armor doesn't hang on anything. So what belt are you wearing? Because Jesus has provided you with his belt, his stability for your battle. Lord, we pray today that we would not walk out of this room haughty, finding someone who we can look to and say, man, I'm better than them. I'm further along than them. But God, may we say, Lord, where in my life do I need to take off the counterfeit belt and put on your belt of truth? Let me see it as a blessing. Let me submit to it as my stability in life. And it's in your name we pray, amen.